0: Listening to Ohio V The
1: World, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty.
2: guys, welcome back. It's episode 5, Ohio versus Invention. Today we're going to be talking about Garrett Morgan, the famous inventor, uh, an African-American, son of, of slaves in Kentucky, um, who comes to Ohio and creates some of the most important uh, inventions that have ever come out of the Buckeye State. Things that we still use today. We'll talk about his life, everything that he overcame to become one of the great inventors of all time, underappreciated in his time. Uh, but Garrett A. Morgan, we'll talk with his granddaughter, Sandra Morgan, uh, who's done such a great job keeping his memory alive and really one of the most consequential lives ever lived. The number of lives that he saved with his inventions uh, is still growing. So we'll talk about Garrett A. Morgan and his inventions today. He comes from Ohio, you know, the home of invention, whether it's Thomas Edison, the Wright brothers, I mean, he created flight. Edison created so many things. We'll do an episode about him here in the next couple of seasons. Uh, Granville Woods, another great African American inventor, Charles Kettering, uh, in in Dayton. Uh, Morgan was known as the Black Edison in the press. Like we said, the son of son of slaves, um, he shows so much bravery. We'll talk about some of the really brave acts that he does and just brains uh, to overcome so much discrimination. Um, and his ideas just couldn't be couldn't be suppressed. They were too good. His invention of the what we know now as the modern traffic light that saved so many lives. His invention of the gas mask, uh, that you know, whether it was World War One or you know, fire departments, so many lives that were saved with Morgan's inventions. Our beer for the episode today is the Cleveland Illuminator, Uh, it's from Market Garden Brewery. Morgan from Cleveland, one of our favorite breweries up there, marketgardenbrewery.com in Ohio City, eight and a half percent. And it's you know they call it a, a strong, strong lager um, but it is really good stuff and really a fun place to go to. You can buy their beer certainly all over Central Ohio, all over northeastern Ohio. Uh, Market Garden Brewery. If you're up in Cleveland, go check that place out. And today we're drinking their Illuminator. Um, they name that for the Cleveland's role of the pioneering of streetlights. We'll be we talking about Morgan's traffic light that he invented today, uh, among many other uh, events and, and inventions. But again, marketgardenbrewery.com. Uh, go check them out. Our couple housekeeping items, you know, quickly, we're asking you to rate and review the show. Just scroll down on your phone if you're listening to us. Uh, right down there, you can rate and review us or give us five stars. We're reading your reviews on the air, uh, at least some of them. Uh, our friend William Mount kind of gets double props today. Not only did he review the show, uh, he also helped us troubleshoot some audio and technical issues we we're having this week with the pod. So I really appreciate, uh, everything Billy does and go listen to his show. The sounds of bus town. We were on, uh, last year, last September, you can look up an Ohio v. the world episode, but he interviews bands, uh, all over central Ohio and does a, a lot of other shows as well, but love the sounds of Bustown town, uh, gets you to, to hear some new bands and some new sounds talk with the artists. Really cool. He wrote, uh, who knew Ohio history was so entertaining. I would have paid more attention in school had it been as fun and entertaining as Ohio v. the world. Alex is a great host, storyteller, and interviewer. Excellent podcast if you'd like to know more about the rich history of Ohio. Thanks, Billy. Those kind of reviews really do uh, help us shoot up the rankings. If you type in Ohio on iTunes, I think we're about the the second podcast that comes up now. We're in there with a bunch of true crime uh, shows that are great and a ton of Ohio State football podcasts that... I occasionally listen to as a big Buckeye fan. Uh, But it's great to be up there. Anyone who looks for anything about Ohio is being directed to the show, and that's really what we want, to get more listeners and share the history. Also, we're featured in the November issue of Columbus Monthly. They did an article about podcasting uh, and featured our show, uh, Big Picture, and a feature article about uh, Ohio v. the World, so you can go buy that. I picked uh, up a copy at Barnes & Noble. Um, I think even in other parts of the states You can get Columbus Monthly uh, Check that out Really wanted to thank them for, for featuring the show and, and so many people that they were able to reach That have never heard of us And the more the better uh, And lastly we were on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics one A great national history and politics show Hosted by a friend Bruce Carlson uh, We did an episode about Jim Trafficking uh, We did one in season 3 And we did a, another one Um a new podcast on his show my history can beat up your politics go look it up uh it's got a website my history can beat up politics.com or anywhere it's a, a very very popular show and he's a great host out in new jersey lives right over the river from new york um but so glad to be on the show with with him and i thought it turned out great so go listen to that as well uh, but that's enough uh talking about things that aren't garrett a morgan the subject of today's show like we said, lived just one of the most important lives of any Ohioans, the son of a slave. Uh, we'll talk about his inventions with his granddaughter Sandra Morgan today. It's episode five, Ohio vs. Invention. Garrett Morgan's born on March fourth, eighteen seventy-seven in claysville kentucky south of cincinnati close to lexington his parents like we said came from from maryland were were slaves morgan one of their many children i want to say they had nine or eleven you know in kentucky under when it was you know during the civil war and in the confederacy no patents could be owned by african-americans anything a slave created uh, was property of their master Garrett Morgan himself, not a slave, but lived during this reconstruction period. He was one of the great inventors of all time. And so we wanna talk about his early years uh, in Kentucky and when he moves to Ohio, uh, we asked his granddaughter, Sandra Morgan, to tell us about his early years.
3: Well, my grandfather was born in 1877, which was literally within a decade of the Civil War ending. um, And so, or, or thereabouts. Uh, And he, you know, he lived in Kentucky. Not much changed for African Americans despite, um, you know, freedom from slavery. And so his family was pretty poor. You know, my great-grandfather, Sidney Morgan, um, actually came from Maryland. Uh, My great-grandfather came to, left Maryland and came to Kentucky probably as a part of, you know, the slaves that his owner had, um, the reason we haven't figured out yet, at any and his, his uh, mother, Eliza Reed, um, was from Kentucky uh, directly. Uh, at any rate, they had a number of children. Um, we were actually able to find nine. He was raised in a, in a family that was relatively hardscrabble. Um, you know, they worked hard, and he only had a fifth grade education. He didn't have time to go to school. He had yeah. to help out um, at home. And so he he worked hard right alongside his other siblings and his and his family members. The one thing that we do know is that a number of his siblings, the older ones, moved to Ohio, and they moved. One moved to New York, um, but many moved to Ohio, and they settled around um, the Oberlin area. They settled throughout Ohio, and that's what give him gave him the incentive. I think, to strike out and move to Ohio when he was 14. He was 14 years old when he left home and decided to come to Ohio.
2: Morgan moves to Cincinnati as a teenager. Cincinnati is a couple days' walk away uh, from where he grew up. He decides to cross the Ohio River uh, into the north. It's the, it's a bustling city, Cincinnati. Porkopolis, we've done so many episodes about the Queen City, but it attracted many people, not just African-Americans from Kentucky, but African-Americans from all over the country and immigrants from all over the country. We talk with Sandra about uh, his journey to Cincinnati.
3: Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I like to highlight when I am speaking, particularly to children, because they don't realize really what, what hard, life is all about. Yeah. You know, even even the hardest of lives here I think in modern times don't realize how difficult people had it 100 or 150 years ago. And so, um, you know, my grandfather, I, I really categorize him as an adventurer because he literally walked to the, he walked through Kentucky um, to the Ohio-Kentucky border um, you know, paid a ferryman to take him across the river, and then he walked into Cincinnati. Um, there was no cars, there were no scooters. He didn't have a horse. He had to—he literally had to walk um, to
2: towards his dreams. Cincinnati was a border, a river town, right on the border of Kentucky and Ohio, on the border between the North and the South. But there's still an incredible amount of Southern leanings in Cincinnati. There always was. And it really shows the difference between Cleveland and Cincinnati. Uh, in, in Garrett A. Morgan's life, he moves to Cleveland. We'll talk about that move with Sandra. But in the 19th century, um, Cleveland was definitely a northern urban center. Again, also a bustling, growing economic center. Um, but think about, you know, what borders them. You have Kentucky to just over the river. Um, and you have Cleveland that is closer to Canada, really, than anything else. Um, and really was one of the last stops on the Underground Railroad to get to Canada. Cleveland was, you know, was not a, a place that was foreign to African-Americans and and to former slaves. We talk, you know, they both had huge ports and people from all over the country visiting there and doing business in those two cities, the two most important cities in Ohio, certainly at the end of the 19th century. But we talk with Sandra about the move. He goes from Cleveland to Cincinnati and why he does it.
3: You know, Cincinnati was a bustling city, and there was a lot of action going on there. And I guess he thought it would be a great place to, um, you know, seek his fortune, give, you know, give life a shot. Uh, but what he found was that, in many ways, Cincinnati was the same as Kentucky. You know, the same racial um, divides existed in Cincinnati, the same prejudices, and in some cases, the same people traveled from Kentucky to um, Cincinnati in Ohio, uh, frequently, and so he really wasn't changing. It wasn't a, a big enough break for him, and a big enough change. And that's when he and he had. Don't forget, he stayed in in uh, Cincinnati long enough to get married and divorced yeah. uh, at a young age. And so um, I think that all of that combined. Uh, for him to just say it's time to to move on and also by then big things were happening in Cleveland and and people knew about Cleveland Um, it had a bustling economy their manufacturing was at its zenith here Um, there was there was a lot going on intellectually socially and from a business perspective and he wanted to be in the middle of the action
2: Morgan gets a bunch of odd jobs and he's working around Cleveland, but he gets a job at a place called Root McBride. This job that really sets him on this arc towards innovation and invention. It was at Root McBride where Garrett A. Morgan would make his first invention.
3: Um, and when he got here, he came ahead of the great migration, so it wasn't it, it wasn't as large a community as one might imagine. However, it was still it, it was still here, yep. um, and it was welcoming. He was able to find a room and some place to eat, and people who were open and and welcoming to him. There was a community. One of the big industries here in Northeast Ohio around the turn of the century um, was
2: the textile, textile industry, industry. Yeah.
3: and so he went to work in the textile factories, uh, where there were women sewing, and he was the maintenance man. Ruby Bride was really an important um, place for Garrett Morgan in a number of ways. Um, it was a catalyst for his career. Uh, it's also where he met my grandmother, Mary Hoshek. You could attribute a lot to um, a lot to his success. Uh, from Root McBride. At any rate, when he was at Root McBride, he noticed that the sewing machines were relatively ineffective just because they were the old-fashioned type with the big pedal that you had to push and things would get moving nicely and then the leather belt that moved the, the machine forward would snap. In the meantime, it was lost productivity for the company and for the women who worked there because as a reminder, When these women were working in these factories, it wasn't just for fun. They were working because they needed the money, and they got paid by the piece. And so if they were not being productive and not sewing, they weren't getting paid. Well, my grandfather um, thought about... Uh, these leather bands and how they could be improved, really, and he created a continuous rubber band, literally a rubber band, and he also reconfigured it on the machine so that instead of it just going around and around, which would allow it to flop around and all kinds of things, um, he did it as a figure-eight so that it maintained constant tension going uh, going around the, the wheels, um, and because it was a continuous band, it didn't break.
2: Nice.
3: And it was, um, you know, it, you hate to say it was revolutionary, but it, at least it really did significantly improve productivity. Um, it was all around a, a great idea. And so um, for his pains, Root McBride Gave him a hundred and fifty dollar bonus, nice. which was huge money in the eighteen nineties. <laughs> um, he got a promotion, so he was no longer the guy sweeping the floors. He became the mechanic, you know, for the for the machines. Um, and they said, well, you know what? We will will patent your. Um, you know, we'll take care of the patent on this, which I'm sure they did. He was not the beneficiary of it. But um, the really great thing is that it gave him the confidence to know that he, had, that he was intelligent and that he had great ideas and that he was a young man on the move.
2: While working at Root McBride, he meets a woman, Mary Hashik, a white uh, Czechoslovakian immigrant. He ends up uh, marrying her, an interracial marriage in the early 20th century. We talked with Sandra about that, but Ohio or not, uh, this was risky. This was scandalous stuff. But they would go on marry and, and Garrett, her grandmother, who she knew very well. Uh, they would be married for 55 years. We talked to Sandra about this marriage and and, and so much love in her family. It
3: was significant. Uh, Mary Hashek uh, was a bohemian seamstress. Her family was from uh, the Czech... Well, I guess we call it now the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia, um, actually from Bohemia, which is a region that is north um, in, within the Czech Republic, um, and, and her family came here. Uh, looking for a better life, of course. They lived right off of West 7th Street in the Tremont area, Mm -hmm. Um, and she worked downtown at Root McBride as well, because Root McBride is, that building is now the Regional Transit Authority building in downtown Cleveland on West 6th, I think it's on West 6th, West 9th
2: Street. Yeah, I think maybe West 9th. Yeah,
3: so um, they both worked there together, that's how they became acquainted, Um, and you know, I'm sure that my grandfather would have been perfectly happy to work at Root McBride at least a little bit longer, as would she have. But when, as their romance blossomed, they were both given an ultimatum by the leadership of the company that, you know, what this is not acceptable. It's it's not socially acceptable. Scandalous. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, you're you're creating a scandal, <laughs> and so if you continue the relationship, you have to leave um, this company. And I'm sure that that was, uh, you know, that was a line in the sand for both of them. And ultimately, my grandfather said, "Fine, you know, let's go." And he left. She left, of course, afterwards because they got married in 1908.
2: Um, and her family wasn't very accepting at first, also, right? No,
3: not at all. In fact, her family was not accepting, um, you know, of the marriage. And my grandmother was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church as a result of it, at her own father's request. Um, and her father uh, did not speak to her at all, said that she was dead and uh, not a part of the family anymore. Thankfully, um, her siblings didn't feel that way and managed to sneak past their father and visit with their sister, visit uh, Mary. And today, the the Hasheks, or the hassocks as they're called now, um you know, I do have contact with members of the hassock family cool. and so yeah, I think that that's a that's a fantastic thing. but at the time it was very difficult. It was scandalous. they were both you know they were both shunned. She was shunned by her family and by her former community. um she was also she faced a lot of um, racism and pushback from the African American community who said, you know, what do you why'd you marry her? We're not good enough. What's the matter with us?
2: Yeah, from, you know, both who is from both sides.
3: Yeah, and so she really faced, in my opinion, my, well, I have my personal feelings. My grandmother was a saint, um, and for any number of reasons, but she was um, one of the people that I was closest to um, in our family because she lived on after my grandfather passed away, and she lived in our house. Nice. And so I learned uh, a lot about my, uh, about my Czechy background, uh, <laughs> and how to behave as a good Czechy girl, um, but I also learned an awful lot about her life with my grandfather, um, and raising three sons, uh, rambunctious ones, you know, um, and having a, a outspoken and really kind of rambunctious husband as well. <laughs>
2: Morgan's first major invention would be uh, start a line of products that would follow him for the rest of his life. Even Sandra's father sold these, uh, this line of products uh, well into his adult years, and it was a bunch of beauty products, uh, hair care for, for men and women. But we talked with Sandra about his hair relaxer, his first famous invention um, that made you know really made him an inventor and, and how it just happened almost out of luck.
3: Serendipity is the only way to describe it. They had a little shop where she made and sold all of these things. The long and the short of it is, they they sewed. Um, my grandmother did. They went on to hire people, and. Uh, had a a little sewing factory. So, um, they were looking for a way to keep the needles from scorching fabric, is the long and the short of it. Um, it was a, a problem that was endemic to the, to the industry, and especially, imagine if you're sewing something that's cotton, beautiful white cotton blouses or something, and you're zipping along, the needle gets super hot and it scorches the cotton. That piece is done. So, um, everyone was looking for some way to, um, you know to keep needles from scorching the fabric my grandfather was fooling around with chemicals and uh, and trying to and trying to coat needles got called away for lunch wiped his hands on a on a cloth right, and yeah. uh and when he came back the cloth was was straight and it was a lamb's wool cloth or something and he thought hmm this is interesting and he spread it on a dog and an airedale which it, and it flattened out the dog's hair and he thought okay now I think I'll try it on my own head, which I thought was really very uh, adventurous. Uh, he tried it on his own hair and it straightened out and uh, he said, "hmm, I think I've got something here. And so that was his first product to market. Um, you know, because don't forget Madame C.J. Walker and all these other people were also in this market place and he thought, well gee, I can get into it too. And he created a line of products. Um, he had the Gerard A. Morgan hair refinery and he had a line of products which included this hair straightener, a black hair oil stain, which is a hair dye, um, that was used primarily by men, uh, believe it or not, it was, you know, he advertised it as being safe for your mustache and everything, Um, he had a a number of pomades for growing hair and, you know, doing all sorts of things, Uh, and he also had lip balms and lotions soaps he had a full line and that line of products sold all along the east coast north and south for years it literally wasn't until uh, 1974 or 1975 when my father who continued to make and distribute those products decided to call it quit
2: garrett morgan worked and invented in a very complicated time the early 20th century in this country Following the industrial revolution where workers rights and regulations had not met up with the speed and danger of industry on march 25th 1911 we had one of our worst industrial disasters it's noticed the triangle shirtwaist factory and uh, it was a fire in new york city A fire started with a cigarette on the ninth floor and due to really the tyrannical owners and the lack of workers' rights and regulations by the city, um, and really working fire equipment, which would Garrett A. Morgan would play a role in, in improving, 146 people died, mostly teenagers. You know, fire started on on the ninth floor uh, with a cigarette, and, and the eighth floor was the it tri- was the shirtwaist factory. Um, Nearly half of these women jumped to their death in front of a 1,000 onlookers. All this happened in 25 minutes. Almost 150, nearly all, young women died. Firefighters had a number of issues fighting this fire. Um, Their their ladders, you know, this fire we said was up on the 8th, 9th, 10th floor. Uh, The ladders only reached to the 6th floor. They couldn't enter the building because they didn't have any kind of smoke protection. Um, There were no gas masks in their safety arsenal. Garrett Morgan would see this. The fire the Triangle Fire changed things. It changed work hours, regulations, uh workplace and uh, safety, workers' rights. We talked with, with Sandra, you know, about some of these things that were happening around Garrett Morgan as it leads to him inventing his safety hood, the new gas mask.
3: Um, he listened to the news and read the newspaper like everyone else, and every other minute there was a there was um, a fire, or a building collapse, or a chemical explosion, or something that was going on, um, both in businesses and and in uh, you know these big apartment buildings, tenements in in the major cities, and and people were losing their lives, or they couldn't get out, and even the firefighters and policemen, you know, who were trying to bravely save people could only spend so much time inside because of the smoke, the fumes, right. the, you know, that sort of thing. And there were all kinds of safety, I'll call them safety hoods, but all kinds of safety devices that were largely ineffective, right? You couldn't, you you could go in, but you couldn't stay in very long before you had to come out. Or there'd be something with a big glass plate in the front, and as soon as you got exposed to the heat, the glass would shatter right into the face of whoever was wearing it, you know, I mean there were all kinds of problems with these things. And so, um, you know, my grandfather was, he was curious, but he also had a very strong sense of public safety.
1: It was 4.40 p.m. Saturday, March 25th, 1911, when the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory became an inferno. Inside the top three floors of this building in downtown Manhattan, 500 men and women, mostly women, mostly immigrants, were stitching their way to a new life in America. Hunched over sewing machines making blouses called shirtwaists, they were about to finish a day's hard labor.
2: A cutter was smoking a cigarette and apparently one of the cigarettes dropped and there's lawn, which is a kind of a thin cotton and the lawn spread the fire very, very quickly.
1: As flames swallowed the factory, the crowd below saw women jump from the upper windows. Firemen's ladders were too short and fire escapes buckled and cracked. At least one door was said to be locked. In all, 146 people died.
3: The average age of the people who died in the Triangle Fire was 21.
2: Garrett A. Morgan didn't invent the gas mask, but he certainly in, improved it and made it one of the, you know, the first working gas masks. Uh, we talked to Sandra just about what Garrett A. Morgan called the Morgan safety hood.
3: He came up with uh, an idea that that ultimately he was granted a patent for. So when he created the Garrett Morgan Safety Device, you know, the big issue, the big deal is being able to stay in a space with chemicals and all kinds of bad stuff in the air for us, a, a, a greater amount of time
2: to save lives.
3: To save lives, and so the Garrett Morgan safety hood um, hinged on having the ability to draw in fresh air and expel, you know, stale air um, and have it recycled. Have it, and so he created a, a what is essentially a charcoal filtration pack that was a part of the safety hood, so that as you breathed, the air was recycled. It was cleaned. All right, and that's how people, and he also got rid of the, you know, if you see the safety hood, um, you know, they're eye eye patches, right, but they're made of mica, they're not made of glass, so they're not gonna explode in your eyes. Um, And it was super heavy-duty canvas, um, lighter than some of the the, um, previous ones. So his design was lighter. Um, It provided for uh, clear sight, while you were inside of a burning building or some such. And it also, and most importantly, filtered air, which significantly increased the amount of time that a person wearing it could spend in a dangerous or noxious noxious,
2: noxious um, environment. environment. Garrett Morgan goes to sell his safety hood. Uh, He goes to the New York International Exposition of Safety and Sanitation and actually wins first grand prize but he can't accept it himself. We'll talk to Sandra about that, but he had the product. Isn't going to sell if it's being sold by an African American. Uh, So Morgan is there, but he's not Garrett a Morgan. He's not the one who invented it. He basically hires an actor from what I can tell, you know, several of those devices were taken. There was a train, a subway disaster underground, the New York fire department, um, he gave them a number of these safety hoods, and they used to go down in the tunnels and help save people. Just when he's there for those couple of weeks for the for the uh, exposition, we asked Sandra about you know the safety hood and its success, and also just the discrimination that kept him from being able to fully enjoy uh, his great invention.
3: Um, well, yes, my grandfather um, took his safety hood. On the on the road, I mean, he his plan was to sell it to fire departments and police departments around the country. What
2: time was it? Like what year? Uh, this and- was
3: around nineteen eleven or twelve. Mm-hmm. Okay, because he he got the patent. He he applied for the patent in nineteen twelve. Was issued the patent in nineteen fourteen. Then as mm-hmm. now, it takes a little while to receive patents. But in the meantime, he took it um, to various safety expositions and places. Um, He couldn't go as himself. Um, You know, he had people who went with him to represent him and those people you know, were Caucasian uh, because he wouldn't have been allowed to represent his own products at the time, Sign of the Times. Um, But at any rate, he took them around to various shows and expositions in order to to showcase this product and was quite successful. In fact, the um, New York Safety Exposition of, I believe, 1911 or 12, um, he won first prize uh, and, and great accolades and started selling the product.
2: At the same time as Garrett Morgan's inventing his safety hood, there's a pretty important event going on that would prove that you would need his safety hood. You're talking about World War I. You know, as bodies pile up on the western front and the war becomes a stalemate, a, a stagnant war, a trench war. Um, you see a reason for Garrett Morgan's safety hood to be on the battlefront. It's at the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915. The Germans are the first to use chemical warfare. It's a horrible thing.
0: April 22nd, 1915. German forces secretly move thousands of chlorine gas cylinders into position around Ypres, 168 tons, enough to swamp Allied trenches along a four-mile front. The French troops stationed there have no idea what's coming. The Germans begin by opening the valves on nearly 6,000 chlorine gas cylinders. The gas is piped into no man's land where a light breeze picks it up. In just five minutes, a deadly cloud four miles wide is drifting towards the French line.
2: These French and Algerian, French-Algerian forces and Canadians who were the targets of this first attack at the Second Battle of Ypres, imagine their terror. There aren't, they've never heard of gas master, chemical gas, you know, this war that's supposed to be so gallant and brave. And really, we start killing people with almost, you know, like aerosols. Like we kill a, a hornet's nest or, how you know, a, a bunch of ants with raid. This was a changing of warfare. And there's a number of different accounts. And, and really, we share this with you um, really coming from the great podcast, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. You got to go listen to his five-part series on World War One: Blueprint for Armageddon. It's really what got us into historical podcasting. It's that good. I mean, these episodes are three, four, five hours long. Um, But he pointed me to a clip, and this is actually from a British soldier who was part of the second attack um, about a week later. And here's what he said. Suddenly over the top of our front line, we saw what looked like clouds of thin gray smoke rolling slowly along with the slight wind. It hung to the ground, reaching the height of eight or nine feet, and approached so slowly that a man could have kept ahead of it. "'Gas!' it was yelled out. The word quickly passed around. Even now it held no terror for us, for we had not yet tasted it. Suddenly, though, through the communication trench came rushing a few khaki-clad figures, their eyes glaring out of their heads, their hands tearing at their throats they came on. Some stumbled and fell and lay writhing in the bottom of the trench, choking and gasping. Those following trampled over them. If ever men were raving mad with terror, these men were. Our biggest enemy now was a few yards ahead of us, in the form of clouds of gas. We caught our first whiff of it. No words of mine can even describe my feelings as we inhaled the first mouthful. We choked, spit, and coughed. My lungs felt as though they were being burnt out, and they were going to burst. Red-hot needles were being thrust into my eyes. The first impression was to run. It was one of those occasions when you not know what you were doing. The man who stayed was no braver than the man who ran away. We crouched there, terrified, stupefied. Think about the terror. Hundreds would die in that attack. There was a, almost a six-kilometer uh, gap after the first usage in in the line. These lines that had held strong for you know, the better part of uh, six months, eight months. Not only was the, their gas... From the Germans, they also were firing artillery. When you got up out of the trench, they were shooting machine gun fire. Um, if the Germans had known it was going to work so well, uh, they would have exploited it more. It could have been a huge breakthrough instead of a, a minor breakthrough in the war. Um, and it could have you know wrapped up the maybe the Western front if they had played it better. Soon both sides are using this gas. We talk with Sandra about how s- her grandfather, Garrett Morgan and his safety hood gas mask uh, would actually be given to the government and its patent used as part of America's forces in their use of gas masks in the war.
3: You know, the war broke out and uh, and that he actually uh, gave the patent to the government. He allowed the government to use that patent um, in order to make the safety hoods um, because he felt that it was just that important you know and so um, and he continued to sell safety hoods um, you know beyond giving the patent to the to the government and so it really didn't it didn't hurt him at all to give away the patent it was it, it was his honor to give it to the government
2: we spoke earlier about the bravery garrett morgan showed during his life. And I think he showed daily bravery uh, to overcome the discrimination and people trying to hold him down. But he certainly showed a particular bravery when we talk about what's called the Lake Erie Crib Disaster. The Lake Erie Crib Disaster, July 24th, 1916, 10, at 10 p.m. at night. They, they built these giant, and we'll have Sandra explain it, but basically to get clean water into Cleveland, they went way out and way under Lake Erie to bring in this water that wasn't contaminated. And they'd be able to to filter to those, you know, throughout the city. You know, I'm talking two hundred and fifty feet under the lake. Um, you know, going out miles out to the lake even. These building these tunnels. Um, but there's a disaster. They were called cribs. There's a disaster in the summer of nineteen sixteen and Garrett Morgan comes to the rescue. We talked to Sandra about the Great Lakes crib disaster.
3: And we just we literally um just Uh, celebrated 103 years now. I mean, it it happened on July 25th, I believe, was the date of the Great Crib Disaster. The long and the short of it is that um, at the beginning of the century, 1916, um, the city of Cleveland was growing, um, and there was a huge need for um, expansion of infrastructure. And so they they were building out a water filled water filtration lines, in order to support new water filtration plants, east and west for the city of Cleveland, and so the cribs actually in underground. They were digging under, they were digging under Lake Erie, meaning underground in Lake Erie, in order to lay pipes um, that would allow for fresh water to come in. Um, you know and to to be able to circulate water the is filter, what it was yeah, yeah, yeah. to to allow fresh water to to flow in and to allow filtrated water to I guess flow out right to create this ecosystem that would allow us to draw on water whenever we need it because again the city of Cleveland was growing by leaps and bounds um and the the fact of the matter is that um, there there was a lot of there were a lot of issues with the way that it was managed in the first place. Um, you know, and this was pre-union and that sort of thing. Dangerous work, yeah. yeah. And so it was very dangerous work. The men who were doing this work were primarily immigrants, mainly Irish. Uh, they called them sandhogs because they would go out, you know, go out on, on the lake and and uh, do this really very dangerous work and for little or no money. Frankly, um, and they were considered expendable, which is hard to imagine—that human life would be considered expendable—and yet, here we are. So um, there was a there was a lot of complaining um, before the the cribs at disaster actually happened about safety conditions. Um, both on shore and at the at the crib or the station that they were that they were working from underneath, um, the underneath the lake, right? Because it was it was literally five miles out from the shore and under the lake. I personally would be frightened to death to be under there, but um, they were down there and they were digging and they were digging with shovels and I mean they picks and you know this was low this was. Um, not high-end machinery that they were using. This was back-breaking work, and it was hot and and uh, and dangerous. And so they hit a gas pocket down there, um, and and it exploded. And of course, then it filled the tunnels with noxious fumes. And so as they were wiring back, um, saying "Help! Help! Help!" You know, we're we're stuck under here, and and. Um, you know people were already dead because they had died in the explosion but this was life or death we really need you to get down here and so they sent people out they sent a, a rescue team out to the crib and the minute that they got down into the into the shaft and the shaft doors opened well of course the noxic fumes knocked them out too literally knocked them to their knees before they could even get out of the shaft, and they were, and
2: that was that. You know, two teams have gone down. Eleven people are already dead. Garrett Morgan's being called upon. You know, they get, they bring him and and his safety hood's over. Um, I would have just been like, "Here you go. Here's a couple of the hoods. Good luck." Uh, but his brother Frank and him um, are are brought to the scene, and they go in. Someone else, I think their father-in-law was down there. It might have been another another man, a, another white man that goes down with the, with the two Morgan boys. But the four-man rescue crew goes underneath the crib. We talked to Sandra about that rescue and how crazy and brave that was of Garrett Morgan.
3: Utter chaos. It was just, it was mayhem. And chaos is the best way to describe it. And finally, someone said, hey, this guy Garrett Morgan with these safety hoods, you know, he's hawking them all over the place. We've seen them.
2: He's living like kind of on the near east side, right? Yeah,
3: he lives in Cleveland. Um, let's call him and, and, uh, and get him down here with those safety hoods. And so they called my grandfather on the phone told him what was going on. He gathered up and and told him, you know, hurry up. He was still in his pajamas because it was two or three o'clock in the morning. He gathered up a bunch of the safety hoods out of his you know, inventory, um, and went and got his brother Frank. Okay, who was also in his pajamas, and said, "Hey, come on, let's hurry it up and get down here. We've got to do this." Um, and so he and Frank arrived, and when they got there, they told him, "Okay, you know, go down there, and if you can, if you can get out of the shaft and see what's going on, you're going to have to wear your you're going to have to wear your bare feet." Okay, no shoes and no boots, and that's because there were wire, there were live wires everywhere, right, and, that's gonna and he trick them. needed to, yeah, and he needed to be able to feel around if he couldn't see, feel around with his bare feet to uh, know where to step and how to and how to move. And you're right, not to uh, create any friction that would cause secondary another, or another tertiary explosion, explosions. Yeah. And so I can't even imagine. The way that he felt, the his heart racing, heart beating in his chest, wondering if this was going to be it, his demise, if he was going to live or die, and not knowing what to expect when he got to the bottom of that of that shaft.
2: I mean, it's just when you so I, I get a little claustrophobic sometimes. I just can't imagine. I'm sure. Did he know that he was going to? Couldn't he have just given them the hoods and (laughs) that?
3: Well, the thing is that they didn't. There was there was a lack of confidence, shall we say, from some of the volunteers that were there. I mean, they knew. What had happened to the other volunteers right, that had gone come down, back, they yeah. didn't come back, and they were scared. And so, you know, it was sort of a, you know, they were throwing down the gauntlet. If your safety hoods work so well, why don't you go down and, and then come back, and then we'll see, which is exactly, by the way, what he did. He went, um, he and his brother Frank went down uh, the shaft. I think that they convinced one other guy to go down with them. They all went down the went you know, opened the shaft doors and and there was mayhem. You know, people were moaning and crying and screaming and there was blood and there was smoke and everything. Um and what they did was they looked around, they had one of those big carts you know the big rolling carts that use for any number of things and they literally loaded the dead and dying into whatever was close by into the cart. Those little mining carts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those people who were still alive Um, You know, the ones that were seriously hurt, and then the ones that were still alive, they got everybody kind of organized, and that was the first trip out. Get the people who were alive out first, the people who are alive but hurt, um, and then, you know, padded with some dead bodies, unfortunately. They came up. And people were astonished. They were astounded that they actually made it back up. And, of course, then people were, you know, they were telling their stories, and it it was pandemonium up on the shore then uh, as well. And so um, men quickly grabbed the safety hoods. They went down in the shaft. And after several trips back and forth, um, they were able to um, bring the men uh, back up. They got all of the men who were alive, of which there were about nine. They brought those men back up first. Those who were, uh, and, and let me qualify that by saying, who were alive and able to actually manage themselves. Yeah. Those who were alive but, you know, seriously hurt or dying, got those men out. And then um, the rest was just, um, you know, picking up bodies, getting people, getting their bodies out of the shaft so that they could have. Um, you know, an honorable burial so that they weren't just buried down in the, down underneath the lake.
2: There's a picture, you can find it online, a picture of Garrett A. Morgan holding one of the men that they rescued. The safety hoods worked. They actually pull seven, uh, six men who were alive at the time out of the crips. Um, only two of those would actually survive, but still an amazing accomplishment. And this picture on the plane Dealer shows Garrett Morgan, you know, carrying one of the uh, one of the victims. But he get no recognition. The article barely mentions him and his brother. You know, just another example of just terrible racism in, in Ohio here in the early twentieth century. Much like with the safety hood where he had to hire a white actor. This time he is actually there. It's people, hundreds of people saw what he did um, and still no recognition. And, you know, uh, Garrett wouldn't take it lying down, but the mayor just put a stop to it, wouldn't acknowledge him. You know, they actually, uh, the guys who went down with him, the white guys were given awards, I think $500, hailed as heroes, but not Garrett Morgan.
3: It was. I mean, he was in the center of the photo, yeah. and and yet um, there was a significant pushback on um, on recognizing him as and his a, brother and his brother as as um, heroes in this. They barely mentioned the Garrett Morgan safety hood, let alone um, that he and his brother were there. And so several other men, you know, they were named as the heroes of the program, and instead of the of the the uh, rescue, instead of even saying, "Well, thanks to Garrett Morgan's safety hood or anything," they went with it. They didn't say a, one word and did not acknowledge my grandfather. And when uh, and when they were handing out medals, you know, the Carnegie Foundation gave out medals to all the men uh, and and cash to all of the men who were considered heroes of this uh, you know this great tragedy. My grandfather was not among them, and no one stood up for him to say that he was there.
2: Garrett Morgan keeps on inventing, and in the late teens and early 1920s, um, cars become prevalent across the country. But you know, cars enter this world of people who would you know would still walk, bicyclists, horses and buggies. You know, men on horse. I mean, it was so dangerous driving a car when they first came out. People died by just a handfuls. Um, you know the the streets there's you know, very little street signs um, inexperience with with you know road safety. Garrett Morgan sees another growing problem of people in his community dying, and he actually sees it firsthand. We talked to Sandra about you know this story that's passed down through her family um, about you know really what drove him to try and make the first modern a tripartite three part traffic light.
3: By then, my grandfather was established, you know, businesses and everything else. Um, but you're right, at the turn of the century there were there were some there was a lot going on on the roads, you know cars, wagons, horses, pedestrians, everybody. Um, and the turn signals or the the traffic signals of the time were pretty much stop and go. All right. It was, you know, you're either moving or you're not. Um, And the big issue then as now is with the intersections. Okay, it's usually around an intersection. You don't know whether to stop or whether to go, what to do. And especially if there's a lot of traffic flowing in out of the intersection, it was a recipe for disaster. And it usually was. And so my um, dad and my Uncle John uh, were in the car with my grandfather when they witnessed this accident. And it was between another automobile and a horse-drawn wagon. And of course, the horse was um, fatally injured. They had to kill the horse, right, um, there on the road, which of course was traumatic for little kids. Sure. Um, and there was a little girl that was in the wagon and she was, she was hurt pretty significantly as well. She was thrown from the wagon, you know, and into the street. Um, and so it was a terrible accident. And my father and my uncle, you know recalled it quite vividly all of their lives so it must have been really horrific um and that made my grandfather think um again there were traffic signals that were available you know they were there were handhelds there were you know ones with levers there were all kinds of traffic signals but their their main focus was stop and go all right and there were a couple of things Um, you know, that were wrong with that. You didn't know, first of all, if you're a police officer and you're in the middle of the road holding something that says stop and go, you're in imminent danger at all times, right? Um, And number two, it's the turn of the century, but everybody doesn't know how to read, okay? So my grandfather used to say, according to my dad, what does stop or go mean to a horse? nothing right and if the if the rider of the horse can't read it still doesn't mean anything so anyway the long and short of it is that my grandfather decided something needed to be done and and his idea was not to invent a new traffic signal it was simply to create an improvement Mm -hmm. on the ones that already existed and the improvement that he got the patent for um in 1923 Um, was really what we call now the caution light it's the it is the third um, the third position of the signal so you know stop okay go okay but the third position was caution all right if you're in the intersection get out of it and if you're not in the intersection don't go in
2: right so if you're something's about to change
3: yeah, something is about to change, um, and so that's what that was the revolution of his uh, of his traffic signal, and it still holds today. I mean, that has not. There have been all kinds of improvements, obviously, to the traffic signal since my grandfather's um, patent in 1923, but the foundational. Caution, or something is about to change, is the constant in every single traffic signal yeah. that we see around the world today.
2: This invention, though, would be the one—the money maker—the one that allowed him to retire comfortably. Uh, we talked to Sandra about you know getting the patent for the traffic light and why he—why did he decide to sell it?
3: He sold the patent. Um, first of all, he was smart. He got the patent in the U.K., in Canada, and in the United States. So he felt he had like a world monopoly on this patent. But he ultimately sold it to General Electric, um, you know, for their manufacture because, you know, being an independent inventor, um, then and now it's very difficult to to manufacture your product. Yeah. And so for him it was it would have been virtually impossible to manufacture the product. So he sold it to General Electric in nineteen twenty four. Um, for what we would think now is peanuts, $40,000, um, but at the time was the equivalent of several million, yeah. and, that, uh, and that allowed him to essentially you know, take it easy.
2: It's um, generational wealth at that point. Yes. It's around this time where the press starts using the phrase uh, the black Edison to describe Garrett Morgan. Uh, it's not something that he called himself, but we talked to Sandra about this nickname for the great inventor.
3: I think that might be a, kind of a media uh, creation. Seems like yeah. Yeah. I think he was certainly interested in um, in Edison and what was going on here in Northeast Ohio, but I don't think it's because he considered himself necessarily the black Edison. I think, that, uh, I think that that was a name that was given to him. I think he was just interested in being Garrett Morgan.
2: Garrett Morgan continues to live in Cleveland. He continues to invent. He's inventing into his 70s. We talk with with Sandra about some of his later inventions, he's still doing it. He's still getting patents.
3: He he went on to he continued to to um, get patents. Throughout his life uh, and his career, and uh, one of them um, was for, a, as an example, a pressing comb, a hot comb, that um, African American or really anyone who had really curly, thick hair uh, could use, and the the tines on it were curved so that you could get closer to the closer to the root of your hair, to your scalp, and then and not without burning yourself or touching your ears or anything yeah. like that, right? And straighten your hair, and that was um, and that was. Was pretty popular. It seems really kitschy, but you know, a great seller, uh, and uh, and made him good money. You know, as a part of his hair care uh, dynasty. Um, he also invented uh, because again, people smoked in bed and Everyone you know, smoked, yeah. yeah, lots of people smoked. People would smoke in bed and they would set their mattresses on fire and and all kinds of drama there. And so he invented um, a little filter. Um, that went inside of the cigarette that was liquid, and I'm not sure what the, what the chemical makeup of that was. It wasn't water, yeah. um, but it was such that if you were smoking a cigarette and you forgot to put it out, um, when it burned down to almost the filter, it would self-extinguish. Wow. And that's something, you know. Believe it or not, we've not we've never seen that in cigarettes. But in China, because people continue to smoke heavily there, and they also smoke in bed and create giant fires, it's actually a patent that um, a couple of cigarette companies have looked into again.
2: Garrett Morgan would die in Cleveland in 1963. He lived to be 88 years old, and although he didn't get maybe his due in his time. Certainly, now, if you travel around the city of Cleveland, you'll see a number of remembrances and honorariums to his life. If you go to the Western Reserve Historical Society, where our guest Sandra Morgan is still very involved, um, they have all his papers donated by the family. Um, they do exhibits and, and, again, have all those different Garrett Morgan artifacts. We ask our guest Sandra Morgan, um, where in Cleveland? Can you see some of these remembrances of her grandfather?
3: There are a number of places. Number one, um, one of my favorite places in town is the Garrett Morgan School of Science and and, uh, Math, uh, which is a high school, part of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, and with a focus on science and math um, that is on the near west side. Um, 38th and Woodbine, I think, is, the, is where that is. Um, there are plaques and, and dedications to him throughout the city of Cleveland on various buildings. As an example, you'll find um, something in City Hall. You'll find something in Public Hall. Um, you know, you'll find plaques hither um, and yon. The water works, the water um, filtration plant, is named after Garrett Morgan. Um, and there are there are statues and things, um, you know, all around town uh, that showcase my grandfather and his, his commitment to this community.
2: And as we close here today, i talk about Garrett Morgan. It was in 2016 where he finally was recognized. Sandra Morgan accepted on his behalf an award for his role in the Lake Erie Crib disaster. You know, in his contributions to uh, not just invent you know his inventions, but his contributions to public safety and to the city of Cleveland and its people.
3: And so, um, the the Westerly Water Filtration Plant um, is named the Garrett Morgan uh, Water right. Filtration Plant, and that actually happened under Michael R. White, Mayor Mike White, named that facility after my grandfather in the nineteen eighties. Um, but we were happy to be able to celebrate again in 2016 um, with Mayor Frank Jackson. In 2016, I was really honored and pleased to be able to accept an award uh, on behalf of our entire family in recognition of my grandfather's contributions to um, that day. Uh, you know, the Great Crib Disaster, but also his his contributions to public safety and public health. Um, throughout his career. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading
2: Tip a canoe entirely too. From the Queen City to Lickery Blue. Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading.
3: I like reading.
2: That'll do it for today's episode, guys. Um, No book recommendation, there's really no great books about Garrett Morgan There are some books if you have kids There's some great books for teens and and children um, That you can look into And and share his story with with your children Um, But no real book Today we'll we'll just tell you uh, Go listen to Hardcore History by Dan Carlin Just came out with a new episode uh, Which is a big deal Because he only comes out with these free episodes About every seven to nine months um, he's doing third part of his uh, supernova in the East episode about the rise of the, of the Japanese in the 20th century. Uh, we're now into World War II, uh, but go back and listen to his blueprint for Armageddon, his World War One podcast that really uh, you know helped push him to prominence. It is some of the best stuff, and like I said, it's it's one of the things that really did motivate us. And again the name of the show Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Uh, We really advise you to go listen to that Uh, Thanks again for joining us And thanks so much to our guest Sandra Morgan She was awesome Meeting us up in in Northeast Ohio To sit down for an hour And talk about her grandpa's fascinating life Our next episode uh, We're going to go back to the pre-Civil War And talk about the abolitionists Two of the most famous abolitionists uh, Came from Ohio We'll talk about John Brown and his raid of Harper's Ferry and how that started the Civil War. We'll also talk about Harriet Beecher Stowe and how her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and her life in Cincinnati. Uh, As President Lincoln said, so you're the little lady who started this great big war. We'll talk about two of the leading abolitionists and the abolitionist movement in Ohio and how it sparked the Civil War. That'll be next time, uh, episode six. But thank you again so much for joining us uh, rate and review the show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook. Um, and again, you can listen to our most recent uh, guest appearance on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, talking about Jim Trafficking. Really had a lot of fun. Thanks again to Bruce Carlson for having us on. Uh, if you have any questions, ideas for the show, email us at ohiovtheworld at com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.